Welcome to Winsome. When I was in my first job with FTE out of seminary, I read a lot of books about vocation. And one of the ones that I really respect is by Douglas Sherman called Vocation Discerning Our Callings in Life. And everything I read just helped me develop more understanding that, you know, we're all called to life with Christ, and then we also have specific callings. Welcome back to Winsome. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Melissa Wigginton. Melissa is the Vice President of Education Beyond the Walls and the Research Professor for Methodist Studies here at the seminary. Melissa is creative and insightful and always several steps ahead of me in creating an excellent idea for ministry. So I'm excited to hear where our conversation leads us today. Thank you, Melissa, for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Me too. Well, Melissa, you have the opportunity to work with um, a larger community than just the seminary community. And I'm curious to hear the genesis story of education beyond the walls. Well, I'm glad to tell you about that. It was, I think, 2010, and the Office of Christian Leadership Education was vacant, had been for a while. And Ted Wardlaw reached out to me to have a conversation about whether I might be interested. He said, interested in being the director of continuing education. And I said, no, that sounds boring. And I've been told that's where careers go to die. And then he said, well, what about lifelong learning? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, let's talk. And so over a series of conversations, we began to dream bigger about how we might create something that with the title signaled that this was something different and that we would be trying to innovate and address broader audiences of learners. And so that's what we've tried to do. Awesome. Well, it certainly has, has worked and has definitely been a place where innovative ministry has taken place in lots of different ways. So we're curious to think back to, I know you've held many different positions across your vocational journey, but what was your first job, Melissa? I would say the first job that merits mentioning was when I graduated from law school Okay, uh, here in Austin. I got a job teaching legal terminology to court reporting students. Okay. So I taught at Capital City Trade and Technical School. Huh. I'm not sure what kind of question to ask about what that was like, but... <laughs> That sounds like it would be an interesting position. Yeah, it was fun. I'm good at explaining things. And so that worked well. It was, I think all the w- students were women, and they were very interesting because they had all come to court reporting for a variety of reasons. But I remember one of the things that I did was make word searches for them. I love that. Yeah. So I, I was just starting my law practice. I just hung out my shingle, so I had a lot of time on my hands. But it was really fun. And I love that there's a a thread of educating others all the way throughout, even perhaps before you realize that that was where part of your vocation was going to take you. So the knowing that you have served as a lawyer, you have served in all these different roles, you've gone to seminary, how did you get into your, what you would consider your current line of work? Yes, it has been a wonderful journey. And it's one of those journeys when you look back you see that nothing was wasted. You know, Joseph Campbell one time said, when I look back on my life, it's like a Dickens novel where a chance meeting on a street corner changes everything. And that's 
that's a good way to describe my journey. I went to undergraduate school and got an American studies degree, which grieved my father no end because (laughs) what are you going to do with it? And so I went to law school and practiced law for, I don't know, 12 or 13 years. It didn't ever really feel like me. You know, I felt like I was wearing somebody else's clothes. Okay. And I found ways to stay alive in that. One of the things I did during my legal career was found a learning program, I guess you'd call it, with a colleague who was a social worker, and it was called Moving Through Basic Tools for Divorcing Parents. And we believed that parents really didn't set out to hurt their children through divorce, and maybe a little education could help them. And so we started that from scratch, and by the time I left for seminary, it was regularly ordered by the courts in Travis County that people would have to go through this program. So you see the educator in that. You see the impulse for reconciliation. So I found a way to, uh, as I said, stay alive and flourish, even though I was doing work that did not bring me life. It was hard to have your own law practice. And then... I spent five years working for a law firm representing school districts, doing special education litigation, which, you know, also really put me every day in contact with uh, people who did not have a lot of resources, who were marginalized. And so I can see in that work, too, this desire to connect with um, healing and wholeness, even though litigation is not really the pathway to that. It was definitely part of what kept me going. And then I, at one point, I took a year off. And one of, the, you, one of the books that I read during that time was a book called Becoming Adult, Becoming Christian by James Fowler. Okay. And I, was, I started reading a lot of theology. And that book had a lot to do with awakening the idea of vocation in me, that there was a call, you know, on your life. I would say... I had not thought about that in such a holistic way until I started reading Fowler. And that kind of set me off on this path and this journey of taking the next step I could see to, st- to take and the next door opening and had, by the grace of God, walking through it. And so I ended up in seminary in Atlanta and from there worked at a wonderful organization called the Fund for Theological Education for 10 or 12 years. And in that job, it was my job to find ways to help people discern whether they were called to ministry. And that was really creative and exciting and got to do all kinds of wonderful work. One of the people I met in that process was Sarah Demarest, who is now Sarah Allen, who is sitting across this table from me. So uh, and another person I met was Sarah Kenny, now Sarah Gaventa, who is our uh, Dean of Students. So it's been such a blessing for God to give me these obvious threads, you know, that run through and remind me that my, my, maybe not my deepest joy, but one of them is really helping people find their place in the world. And so the work that I do now is, I think, in continuity with that, because it's about helping pastors and congregations and lay leaders live more fully into their own call and to flourish in in what they're what they're spending their lives on yeah and you have the opportunity to do that across demographics like I'm thinking about the houses of hope initiative where you're getting to work with rural churches and pastors and thinking through that creatively and then 
equipping pastoral leaders and college of pastoral leaders. And I don't know, it always seems like your job has so much innovation in it that I'm always amazed by the different sparks of ideas that you and Erica come up with in um, Education Beyond the Walls. So it's awesome to hear that thread um, of education, innovation, and assisting everyone no matter what in finding a place at the table. Like no matter what your resources might be, I'm grateful for that. Well, you named one book that has been important to you, um, James Fowler's Becoming Adult, Becoming Christian, but I wonder what other books have shaped your vocation? There are a lot of different books that have been significant, and I love to learn about new ideas, so I'm always changing and deepening my vocation through different things I get interested in. I've done a lot of reading in leadership, uh, congregational learning, Uh, new kinds of learning structures, pedagogies, all kinds of stuff. And it's interesting because Jim Fowler was a professor of mine when I went to Candler, and he was one of the readers on my master's thesis. And as I got to know him, he said when he was at Harvard, one of the other students said, you know, Jim, you're B-plus in more things than anybody I know. (laughs) And I kind of feel that way about myself. You know, I I know a, a little bit about a lot of things. So... What I would say, though, to respond to your question about shaping my vocation is books have certainly been a big part of it, but also it's been uh, the people and the communities, the experiences, the, you know, being vulnerable and taking a risk and paying attention to what I learned and, you know, where did the ball go in the gutter and when did it keep on rolling down the, the lane? And I'm really energized by that process. Yeah, so the piece of relationship has been, if not more influential than what you've read, has been as influential. Right. I think that's the kind of learner I am. And as you know, I have uh, the great joy of living with a theologian. And uh, my husband, David White, is much more of a scholar than I am. And so I get him to explain a lot of things to me, you know, so he can practice putting the hay down where the goats can eat it. (laughs) And then you can go And then I can talk about (laughs) it, you know, with some measure of of understanding. So that's been a great gift, too, for my own learning. Yeah, that's awesome. I can only imagine what the conversations are like sometimes in y'all's house. (laughs) Um, I'm curious, Melissa, as someone who innovates quite a bit and who, as you said, like I'm watching the ball roll down the gutter, watching it roll down the lane, like what's going to work and take flight? Do you have, think about failing creatively and and you are better at this than most people have like, let's try this. And if it doesn't work, then we'll retool it and try something else. But do you have a, this was William's question, a favorite failure? Yeah. I love that question. Yeah, I think that trying things and see what's going to happen is maybe not always a sign of intelligence, but uh, it is the way I am. And I've only realized that other people aren't like that when I start describing some of my failures. And they look at me as if anybody with, you know, common sense would know not to try that. But I'll tell you about one of them, which was when I was at FTE, and I've been so blessed to have participated in many grants funded by the Lilly Endowment. And one of them was, we got this idea that if we could get denominational leaders, 
we had a network of denominational leaders who are working on vocation and there it's all mainline people and if we could get them to come together and like make a series of videos and learning materials and workbooks this was before podcasts and um and then it could kind of be where they could just substitute in you know instead of like brought to you by the pcusa they could put brought to you by the evangelical lutheran church in america and well that was not what they wanted to do you know and we would get them together and talk and they'd say they wanted to do all this and then they just would not do anything you know and so finally after a few rounds of that I started to realize we got to do something different and uh, the great joy of working with Lily Endowment is they are about learning they are a learning organization and that's the value I have for the work I do and so we ended up um, working with each denomination individually and but it was very complicated the way we had uh, constructed the budget and how it was going to be distributed and they were going to have partnerships and I learned more about denominational politics in doing that than I ever really wanted to know you know and it's it just really opened my eyes to you know the reality of people's attachments to their own way of doing things. I mean, my mistake was not understanding the difference of identity between the different denominations and not understanding that there was a cultural piece that had to be communicated, not just information. And I think this is a big paradigm shift in, in education is, you know, from I'm going to give you this information, it's well argued, it's rational, accept this and go and do likewise. To saying, wait a minute, you people live in a church that was founded, you know, in Geneva or wherever in the, you know, by John Calvin. And I'm a Methodist. I'm in a church that was started as a, because England lost the war and we had to have our own church, you know, and that these realities have to be faced in order for people to tell their own story. So that was a big learning for me out of that. That they inform who we are and even what we come to believe. Right. And how we're going to tell people who we are. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate you sharing it. And it sounds like that good came out of it, both for you as well as for those denominations who have, who had all these resources. And thank goodness for someone like Lily who could say, okay, well, that didn't work, but we can change it and adapt with this. So that, well, you have the opportunity, Melissa, to hear and talk with pastors and congregants all over different demographics and different places and communities. So what's something that you're hearing from pastors and congregation members as you engage with them in either formal ways or informal ways through Education Beyond the Walls? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'm always trying to improve my listening skills. But I will say that I hear a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a dominant narrative that the church is failing and you know I can't hardly get an email from some Christian journal or religious blog that doesn't have something about it's awful and we're losing people and we're losing money and we can't take care of our buildings and I think all of those things are factually true. I think people are getting tired of that story as the only story so I see people who are facing those realities in their own context and, and dealing with it differently. You know, every congregation has a different set of resources, and 
the truth is not every congregation is meant to live forever. And it's hard to face those very, very sad facts. Um, And some people are really burned out. This is nothing new, but the pandemic revealed a lot of things that were already there and accelerated the process. And I think a lot of pastors have been trying to figure out how to keep doing what they were doing with different kinds of technologies. And that's running faster and faster to try to stay in the same place. And one of the things that I learned from Gil Rendell, who is a Methodist uh, church, I don't know, what would you call him, guru, genius? Institute, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he talks about the difference between improvement and innovation. Mm-hmm. And innovation is not just doing the same thing better, but it's trying to really think uh, about doing something that's different. So I hear pastors who are trying to, who are just trying to improve. Right, trying to do the same thing, but now on Zoom. Right, and some of them who are really trying to and able to, for a variety of reasons, ask a different set of questions. You know, it's hard because they're working with a group of people. So they, you know, that's the thing that they don't tell you about about being a pastor is these are not people who are just waiting for you to come and enact your latest brilliant idea. So it's very relational, and that that works differently for different people. I think, so there's pain, especially in the United Methodist Church right now, incredible pain, incredible pain among clergy and a lot of how they deal with that has to do with where they are and who their congregation is. But I also hear uh, people who have, like I said, kind of gotten worn out with that story beginning to say, well, where is hope? Mm-hmm. And no, we don't know what's going to happen. We are pretty sure we can't save the church, but we're still here, so let's let's do what we're called to do, you know, and pastors who are still preaching and praying and visiting people in the hospital and baptizing babies and, you know, marrying people and, and all, all of those things, which are still very life-giving. And then there's a set of pastors who are really on the edge, and they're really trying some things that are very different in terms of the form that church takes and asking questions, which on the one part of my brain, I think, yes, this is great. These are good questions. And on the other part of my brain, I'm thinking, I think that's heresy, <laughs> you know, or I think that scares me. And I, I've gotten to a place where I'm able to say that really scares me and be honest about that and then sit loosely with the questions and see what really new things might emerge and not feel like it has to be one way or the other. And I think that's what pastors need is people who will – you know, let's be honest, let's don't be reactive, let's be prayerful, and uh, what what's going to happen? What can I do? Yeah, and when you get to those scary places, well, what is it about this that's, that's scaring me? And being able to be open to that question so that you can hear, well, is there something worth, you know, what what's worthwhile inside of this question or inside of this particular thing and what perhaps needs to be let go? Right. And I think part of it's being honest with myself that there is kind of in my lizard brain this (laughs) fantasy that the church should be just like the church that I grew up in when I was really happy there. And letting go of that has been really big for me, Mm -hmm. you know, and starting to get honest in my own life about what is the church for me. And 
that's that's been a lot of my work. And, and I think the other thing, and I brought this quote because I love it. So as I think about my own journey through my feelings about the church yeah. and all of its changing, I am heartened by this quote from Thomas Merton who says, do not depend on the hope of results. In the end, it is the reality of personal relationships that saves everything. And in my work in Education Beyond the Walls, that's a big learning. This has been my learning back since those days of that denominational project. You know, real change happens uh, in community and over time. And it is the relationships that are the way that people really learn and that get connected more deeply with what we're trying to do in Education Beyond the Walls. So we can advertise things, and people might be interested, and they may come to something, but then it's what happens once they connect yes, yes. that is, I think, what's really the most important. And it's certainly the most fun. Yeah, the connectional piece is certainly what keeps them returning to something when you right. feel right. like you have a community around you. And it's through those relationships with people who are in a different place than I am that I've been able to change. Yeah. I love that quote. Thank you. I'd not heard that one before. And that's, I, I love it. I'm going to be mulling over that. Thank you for sharing it. Um, well, I'm curious as we think about the students who are here with us on campus um, and equipping them for the church that they're moving into today. What do you see from your vantage point as something that's needed as a part of their equipment? That is such a good and such a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not going to go technical. I'm going to go theological. And in some sense say, you know, maybe we just tattoo. This is technical. We tattoo them with uh, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Great. Start working on that tattoo budget, okay? And we can put the Austin Seminary logo right there. I say that because I think that that love is, you can't do anything if people don't know that you care about them and love them. And you have to have your own faith, you know, that's not um, a legacy from your childhood, that's not derived from what somebody else believes, but, you know, when it gets hard, you've got to you've got to decide and live as if I do believe this. You know, I, I not just believe, but I belong in this story, and that's my faith: is that this is where I belong. This is who I am. And then the hope is what we need desperately, almost more than anything else in this world now. It's it can't be a pie in the sky, but how do we how do we help students learn how to um as i have a friend who's who has her her descriptor of her on her email is uh spy for hope oh i love that you know so how do we teach students to be spies for hope because that encompasses so much and i think it's in, includes curiosity yes. it includes the courage to let go of what you think is right and what you know a lot of students I think come in with some main conviction that they want to live out in the world and maybe that's where their God's leading them but you know gosh for this time let go let you know open your hand a little bit and don't be afraid to interrogate 
all the ways that we put people in boxes based on those labels, good and bad. You know, let's let's uh, use our two ears in here. So I think that that courage and curiosity and that love, and I think included in that was I've got courage, curiosity. I got another C, confidence, and that is the confidence to engage with the tradition and not throw it out the window because a lot of people did bad things. The confidence to admit that and also stay in continuity. Oh, that could be a fourth C, continuity. And, you know, the confidence to, to try to do something but fail. The confidence to uh, engage new ideas, as I said, and uh, let go of, of whatever you're holding on to so tightly that it's keeping you from relationship with God and other people. And seminary is such a widening space for folks to hear from all these different experiences and then say, like, okay, how, what does my faith say now about all that I have learned and the people that I have wrestled with, either living or in book or in you know whatever it is um, that they've wrestled with those I love that idea opening your hand a little bit more to hear what um, or to receive what what gifts are being offered we're in a time of transition as a seminary we have a new dean new president we're moving in new chapters what's a hope you have for the seminary as a place that nurtures the church oh gosh I love that I'm so so encouraged that we have in our mission statement that part of our mission is to nurture the church. It needs nurturing. And, uh, you know, we know God provides the growth, but I hope that this institution can hold to that commitment uh, in this time of not just leadership transition, but in this time of so many transitions in the world can hold to that commitment to the church alongside a lot of other important commitments. And, you know, I think, I think this time of change in our own leadership nested in so many other changes is my hope is that we get curious about what God is calling us to do. So curiosity and a commitment to nurturing the church that Christ has called us to serve. Exactly. Thank you. Well, Melissa, I want to move us towards our rapid fire questions. These are the ones that I said you can't, you don't get to overthink these. You just get to respond with whatever's on your mind. And I take a cue from Brene Brown, who always ends her um, podcast interviews this way. So if you could push a button and your most favorite meal would appear, Melissa, what would be on the plate? Well, I never can answer any question that has most favorite in it. One of. If I could push a button right now, I would have a plate of um, ravioli that would be half of it would be roasted butternut squash filling and the other part would be a zebra ravioli with lobster filling and it would be in brown butter okay this sounds delicious and then I would have um, some roasted broccolini on the side and I would end with a flourless chocolate cake Um, I want to go to dinner right now (laughs) to eat that that sounds amazing (laughs) and I've never had zebra ravioli so I'm gonna ask you about that later but what so what is something that brings you joy my granddaughter's faces absolutely I love that and you have two right I do if you could be a character in any tv show or if it was you know if it needed to be a movie or whatever um, which show would you choose? 
it's hard to say one show, but I can talk about the character I would want to be, who I have seen in multiple shows, and that is the um, middle-aged British female detective oh, yeah. inspector okay. who is, you know, always dresses very smartly and is really a good leader and who thinks, you know, to ask the questions that other people aren't asking, to solve this crime for the good, and she's persistent, and everybody calls her Gov. I love this. And I see pieces of you in that. Even though we're not solving crimes, Melissa, often you are the one to ask the question that the others of us haven't gotten to yet. We'll start calling you Gov if that makes you <laughs> What flavor of ice cream have you tried recently that you really enjoy? You know, I'm not a big experimenter with ice cream, so I will tell you my favorite thing is called a mint snowball at Amy's Ice Cream, and it's sweet cream, vanilla ice cream with hot fudge sauce, Oreo chips, and chopped junior mints. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. It is. It's totally amazing. Okay. I won't. Zebra ravioli and mint snowballs are two of my biggest learnings from today. <laughs> and then my last question on the rapid fire list is why Austin Seminary? Oh my gosh, Austin's my home. You know, I came here to go to college and I went to law school and I lived here probably, I don't know, over 20 years during that period. And then um, David got a job here. I didn't come with them because I left my job, and then Ted started this conversation. So I can just see the way that this happened logistically. But the reason I have stayed here is uh, because there is the commitment to the church. There has, has been freedom and support for creativity, and there is a sense of community among people who care deeply about all the a lot of the things that I care deeply about and who are, you know, use their minds. And I can go and receive the Sacrament of Communion every Tuesday about 1130. I don't always get there 1110. But uh, yeah, and you know, when you have a career somewhere else before you come to a career in church or church related places, it's a different experience, and, you know, I remember the first day in seminary when we prayed to start class, I cried, you know, and every meeting at the seminary starts with a prayer, and why would you want to do, why would you want to be somewhere where it wasn't like that? Mm-hmm. Why, would, I, why would I? I wouldn't, right. you know, that's, that's very thing for you. Yeah. important yeah, to me, awesome. yeah. Well, thank you, Melissa, for sharing this time. It was a fantastic conversation. I enjoyed learning more about you as well as your work. And thank you again for joining me. Until next time, y'all stay winsome. On behalf of the Reverend Dr. Sarah Allen, I'm William West, wishing you Godspeed. Always remember, you can't talk what you don't know, and you can't lead what you won't know. Until next time, be winsome.